We will again be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to honor you if you brought a Bible to turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, we will accommodate for you by putting uh, it on the screen. A little bit of judgment there, right? Did you feel that? Just a tinge of judgment. Nothing to make anybody angry. Nobody's going to get up on me, but just a little, little jab. But uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 7 in just a little bit. In the first service, the 930 service, I was honored to stand with a young man and baptize him. His name is Noah. Noah's about 15 years old. It was a great sense of humor, great young man. And just enjoyed being with him and his family at the first service. And I, you, none, of, no, none of you are aware of this, but we've had some issues, some plumbing issues behind me with the baptistry. There's been a slow leak. And so this morning, I was basically uh, praying about it, thinking about it, worried about it a little bit. And uh, just, you know, wanting to check with our facilities director to see. And it occurred to me that I was worried about, you know, whether we'd have enough water to baptize Noah. But uh, we were able uh, to do that. Thank you very much. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we have in these weeks, and today uh, we'll be there, we're just looking at sexuality and singleness and marriage and divorce, and we're going to be light on that uh, first word that I just mentioned today, so it's not one of those that we've had last week or certainly the week before that, but these are uh, weighty subjects. They have glory, they have weight, they, they, uh, they cut to our hearts. Uh, it's fundamental about what it means to be a human, to process these things, and we can be hurt by them. And so on one hand, there's compassion. I think as a pastor, I think of my life and yours and some of the messed upness and the brokenness and the, the, the things that plague us and that are confusing for us. I think about what happens in the pew on every Sunday morning and certainly when we open something like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and 7. I think of a friend of mine whose guts have just been ripped out because he found out that his wife is leaving him. I think of a couple who everybody praises them, everybody looks up to them, they're highly thought after as exemplary in the relationship era, er, area, but they have a secret, one that nobody knows about. They haven't been intimate in a uh, in couple of years. I, I think of a child whose one prayer to God is, God, bring my mommy and my daddy back together again. I think of the lady who comes to church week after week, year after year, and her one prayer is, God, help my husband, the man I'm married to, help him to come to know you and love you and serve you. And so there's this compassion that I feel knowing what we walk through, knowing what we experience, knowing some of the people that I have the honor of pastoring here. But I also think of conviction. I, I looked at this uh, recently, took a picture of it, but it gets me a little bit. I look at the, the, this picture of a book, bookshelves in a bookstore and with the heading you see and it just gets me it just makes me say gracious to learn about some of the ideologies that are aggressive that have no room for the meaningful exchange of opposing ideas that are being forced upon us in, in many ways and I think about this and I, I've just thought about how if you take away farmers and truckers from our country it would cripple us but if you took away radical gender uh, ideologists uh, we, there would be less fear and less division and this is a series listen we're confronting it this is a series where we're looking back uh, at the ancient ways when I see this and I stood and took this picture at a bookstore and thought about some of the harmful ideas and some of the fear and the division I couldn't help but think about Ecclesiastes 12 12 which says there are many books that have been written and to, to read them it, it, it just it wearies the mind it wearies the bones all these books that have been written I think about what Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3 7 that there's people who are there always learning but they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth 
I think of Jeremiah 6.16 that says this. You'll see it up a portion of that passage. It says, look for the ancient past. This is what we're doing in this part of the series. Look for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. We're looking at the story of old. We're looking at the ancient past. Look, I like to be trendy. I like to follow some fads. I like to think about what's current and what's progressive. But listen, there's a, a better life to live at times when we look at what is ancient. And so we are in this letter looking at a couple of thousand years ago in AD, almost 60, that, that it was written to the church at Corinth, one of the really important cities in that part of the world at the time. But we're also kicking it back to the beginning, in the beginning of the story that says, in the beginning, God created. God created and it was good. And God pairs these things up and says, this is my creation. And never at any point uh, is God looking down on us going, all right, for thousands of years, this has worked. Now y'all just go ahead and switch your style up. God is saying this matters and this is eternal. And so for us, it's wise for us, even though it pushes against the currents of our culture, to look back at the ancient past, to ask where the good way is, and then maybe the most important part, to walk in it. And we want to do that gently, boldly, lovingly, and consistently. And so this morning, I think about the good story that went bad. God created and God said it was good, but sin entered in the woman ate the forbidden fruit. The man ate the forbidden fruit. No kidding, y'all. This morning at 6.40 a.m., I'm on the third, fourth of conference table. I'm just looking out, praying for our morning pregame jitters and nerves and such. And I look out and a black pickup truck pulls up and a couple's in the black pickup truck. And the woman gets out and we have this pretty rose bush right there on the front at Old Kent. She starts picking, cutting flowers off the church's rose bush. I took a picture of her and the automobile, we're gonna run the tag. One of my friends said, let's send her a dozen roses from Fonder Church, wouldn't that be great? A note and a bottle of wine. And a, but this lady straight up stole from the church, stole flowers from us, right? She, she grabbed these flowers from our church. She, she ate the forbidden fruit. And it's easy for us to judge her, but we do the same sin as in your heart. Sin is in mine. There are bright lights shining off my bald head. I'm on the stage, but don't mistake me as being better than you. There's stuff bound up in my heart, and we take things that aren't ours. And when sin entered after this good story, it turned bad because they, they doubted God. And in doubting God, they walked into disobedience. And so blame came. Hiding came into the world. Divorce came into the world. Relational ruptures came into the world. Polygamy and infidelity and cruelty all entered into the world and all this darkness entered into the world. But listen to God's heart coming through Jeremiah chapter three and verse eight. It says this, she saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery, but that treacherous sister Judah had no fear and now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution. This is God saying, I understand pain. This is God saying, I know what it feels like to be left. This is him saying, I know what it's like to love someone who's got a stubborn heart. And God would love his people and call them out. And he would demonstrate patience with them. And he would set up new leaders and new plans. And then one day his son came and look what Jesus would say in Mark chapter 3 and verse 33. He would say, who are my mothers and brothers? He asked, that Jesus asked the onlookers. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus went a little bit weird on us here, a little odd statement, an odd response. Maybe we wouldn't think of that from the son of God. 
But Jesus is saying, yeah, there's my mama, but there's a time for me to grow up. The scripture says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He, he grew physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. He grew in all the important ways, mentally. He grew in those ways and he began to separate himself. But he's saying, hey, yeah, I love my mama. Yeah, my family is important, but there's a bigger family. And so two things I want to undergird what we're talking about this morning, because we're going to talk to single people, we're going to talk to married people, but I want that to undergird us that we have a God who understands what divorce recovery is like. We understand a God whose heart has been broken, and we can follow a Savior who says, let me tell you, despite what's happening in your biological family, there is a spiritual family that I I want you to be involved in. It's a really important family, and by the way, it's the family that's going to shine in eternity. And so let us now put value in this spiritual family. Let it complement the biological family that we have. And listen, everybody's loved. Everybody's included in God's family. It's radically inclusive. Come as you are and watch God can change you as you bring that to him. I want to give four questions that single people should ask all from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Four questions that single people need to ask. The first one is this, will marriage help me or will it hold me back? Look at the end. We looked at this last week. If you were here or got to tune in, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll look at 32 to 35 again. I would like you to be free from concern. Don't get married unless unless you're burning. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, context here. Why do you feel like Paul's a little further on this, y'all don't get married side? He's not having a bad day. He's not in a terrible mood. He's not changed his theology. He's not departing from the creation story in the beginning God made male and female. It is not good for me. He's not departing from this at all. But what he's doing here is he's in a society that worship marriage. He's in a society where uh, women were mistreated and children were getting the bad end of it. He's, in a, he's writing to a society. And this is, listen, Christianity among its great gifts to our world is the fact that it, it praises and laws the life of single people. Uh, singleness carried a stigma in its day. I, I know, we mentioned this last week, you may be single and in our church, you're loved and valued and needed. If we extracted single people from our volunteer base, we'd be in a world of hurt. And that's really what Paul's saying in the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But he's writing and saying that there should no longer be a stigma to being single. There should be something there. And although marriage is a gift, singleness, Paul writes, for some is a gift. The word I pointed out last week is the word in the Greek. It's the word translated to English. It's our word charisma. And he's saying that this charisma, that you have a gift. Now, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You're part of the temple. He wants you. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't treat it like a a rental car with unlimited mileage. 
treat your vessel, possess it in sanctification and honor, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But you're a part, you as an individual are part of a temple that God is building. So help build the temple and bring who you are to the temple and bring your gifts. If it's a gift of prophecy, if it's a gift of mercy, if it's a gift of leadership, if it's the gift of exhortation, you bring that gift. And he's also saying just like, it's the same word, just like there's a gift for these things, there's a gift for being single. But can I say this? This is flowing out of my pastoral experience this week talking to some of you about this great letter that we're preaching through. Just because you have a gift, it doesn't mean that it's easy. If you have a gift, it doesn't mean that, oh, I've got this gift. The Lord has given me a gift and I will use it for good and not for evil. And people will part the waters when I walk by. I've got this gift. It's easy. That's not the case. Yesterday was Lauren Lucky's birthday. Y'all think we should sing to her today? No, we don't have time. But I, I love Lauren. I, I mean, I'm on, I'm on the clock. But uh, I love Lauren. And one of the things I love about Lauren, it's easy for us to come in here on a Sunday or whenever with some of the special services we have and say, man, she's talented. And she is, you know, she's been given a gift. But what I see in Lauren is Lauren off the stage, Lauren on the daily, Lauren who loves people, Lauren who includes people, Lauren who works hard, Lauren who's passionate uh, about her work. She really cares. And it's easy for us to go look at the gift that she has, but she works hard. It's not always easy to have this gift. I would say that um, I've had the gift of teaching. But I can tell you what James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, that those who teach incur a stricter judgment. And it's true. It doesn't mean I don't work on this. It doesn't mean there aren't, there's not hours of labor. It doesn't mean that I don't get disappointed and discouraged very often. Let me tell you the truth. It doesn't mean that most Sundays I don't go home at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't descend into a deep valley of discouragement no matter what has happened in the day. And I'm like Elijah who's depressed. Only a snack and a nap is going to bring me to, together. And Susan needs to be careful. Get out of my way. Let me nap. Don't give me any chores around the house. But look, just because you have a gift, what is your gift? Just because you have a gift doesn't mean that it's easy. You'll have to fight things. You'll have to overcome obstacles. You'll have to combine good old-fashioned human hard work with the spiritual gift that God has given you. And if you have the gift of marriage, work at it. I'm going to talk to you in a second. But if your gift is singleness for however long and whatever condition you entered into singleness, whether you've never been married or you've been widowed or divorced or whatever, like leverage the gift and use it for his glory. I have a friend that I've admired for a bunch of years. He tuned in to to some of the sermons we preached recently from many states over. And I know his testimony. He's one of those guys where, I I mean, I can't tell. Someone asked me this week, a woman, hey, do you think I have the gift of singleness? Like, I have no idea how to, a lot could go wrong in how I answer uh, that question. But I I just, you know, I stammered and clamored and changed the subject. But um, I know this friend of mine has the gift of singleness, and he's one of the smartest people I know, one of the best writers, one of the most impactful people. And uh, he'll probably take his singleness to the grave. But here's, uh, and I ask him to speak to me, to speak to us. I'll read his words. When I was first making the decision to pursue singleness, there were stabs of pain as my heart realized I would never attend my child's soccer tournament. I would never kiss my wife goodnight, but from the grave of those dreams have risen better ones. God is calling me to things I would never have been able to imagine or do as a married person. I gave up a good thing to God and found God will not be outgiven. The church should remember that this intentional singleness can be a gift to the person and a blessing to the single person's community. Single ministries ought not to simply be a ministry of matchmaking to the marriageable and a ministry of palliation to the rest. 
In church, we speak of seasons of singleness, often like terrible, and if God is merciful, temporary states. When single, Christians often ask, why, and strive with the Almighty like Job. Yet for most of the church's history, our brothers and sisters who chose singleness were the exemplars, the spiritual superheroes. The ability to be single and satisfied in Christ is a great and powerful gift. One should cultivate, celebrate, and use. If you ask me what it's like to be intentionally unmarried like Paul, like the angels, like the church in the resurrection, and best of all, like Jesus during his earthly ministry, I'd say it's pretty great. This may be your gift. And wherever you are in this continuum, let me just say, let's be that church. Let's be that church that looks at someone and says, there's nothing wrong with you. Nothing about your life should be put on hold. In fact, if this is your gift, you'll have a focus and a freedom and a flexibility. But I will say this, this is not a freedom from responsibility. This is a freedom for more responsibility. In what ways can you leverage your life as a single for kingdom work. Can we be that church? Can we come around and celebrate our single sisters and brothers in Christ? The second question that I would want our single people to ask is this, is now the right time? Is now the right time? Look what Paul would write in the seventh chapter. The verse 26, because of the present crisis, sorry, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. As he is, is single. What is the present crisis? I've studied it this week. I've delved into some of the smartest minds that I know of through commentaries and whatnot. And nobody can really definitively say what the present crisis was, was what Paul was referring to. Uh, history does tell us that there were two great famines in southern Greece at about that time. So we, we may can conclude. And famines back then especially uh, had a lot of social unrest and upheaval. Not the time to bring in a family. If you're having trouble feeding one mouth, why in the world would you add another to it? Perhaps that's what Paul is referring to. We know the early church was persecuted. They were in exile. So maybe he's writing about that because of the persecution, because of the famine, because of the present crisis. No matter what was happening, Paul's writing to this church going, are you sure this is the time? What truth can you draw from this? What truth might you deduce from this passage? You may be going through something. You may have a present crisis. Now, look, the time will never be right for marriage when all the stars align. So if anybody's engaged or needs to be engaged out there and you're sitting next to each other and you're mad at me now for preaching this, just lay off a second. I'll try to speak for you. But no one should, no one should use you know, perfect situations because the stars never align perfectly. And you, know, you, have to, you have to sometimes look before you leave. But he's saying, listen. You could be going through a present crisis and just now's not the time. I've got a friend who has served for years. Now, he did get married, had a family. We kept in touch. He was in my wedding all those years ago. But, man, he was Mr. Single, Mr. Single. He wasn't sure if he had the gift. And like uh, all of us, he, he vacillated with, between contentment and discontentment about his season, about his situation. But for many, many years, he served as a missionary. He worked with a Christian organization that brought relief effort in a third world country. They provided clean drinking water to people far, far away, like a 20-hour plane ride. And he would sleep on the ground. He would sleep in tents. He spent many, many nights uh, curled up in bushes under the desert sky, figuring out what to spray on him to ward off predators at night. Can you imagine? That's not the time. That was not the time for him to get married. Could you imagine bringing a wife uh, into that? And you might be going through something that or something similar or something vastly different, but it's still not the time for you because of a present situation, because of a crisis. So will marriage 
help me or will it hold me back? You ought to ask that. Verse 32 to 35. But is the time right now? Verse 26. Third question is this. Can I see myself with him or her for the rest of my life? Look at 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 39. We've yellow highlighted this. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he is happy. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she is happy. I'll get it right. Third time's a charm. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. I'm looking at some couples over here that, I've, that I have married or I'm about to marry. And if you do traditional vows, we'll say these words, as long as we live. Nobody knows. James chapter 4, life is like a vapor. It's a mist. It appears for a while and then it vanishes. But as long as you're living, you're saying, I want to take this person. I was at Chick-fil-A, the new Ridgeland store, the other day eating God's chicken. And I was waiting on my order, and I noticed a, a large picture, an oversized print. And it's just simply a close-up of a couple, nothing, just their hands. No other, ju- just their hands. And, I, you know, you know you're getting old if you're, just look at your hands and you can tell. D- do that right now. How do they look? Some of y'all, it's kind of scary, isn't it? But um, hands, they say, show age early. But this couple, man, they were um, even beyond me with the wrinkles. And I remember looking at that and knowing that we live in a world that celebrates youth and beauty. All the magazine covers, youth and beauty. Best beach bodies, they're all like under 25. Which you ought to have a good beach body if you're under 25. Can I just say as a 50 plus year old? But we, we worship youth and beauty. But I couldn't, I was just so struck. I couldn't get past these, these old hands and how beautiful and how Two wrinkled old hands holding each other decade after decade is what the world needs. This is a lifelong commitment, Paul is writing. So when you look at someone and you're thinking about it, or one day if that person appears or someone appears on the horizon, you need to look and ask, is this a person I could spend the rest of my life with? Psychologists have weighed in on this and they said, if you get married, if you're married for many decades, that you're actually married to five different people. That's not a polygamy thing. That's not a multiple personality thing. That's saying that the person you marry now, they're going to evolve into four different people. And by the way, if that's you, you're the one evolving into four. Anybody feel that way? Don't answer in church. But do you feel like, man, this is not the person I'm marrying? And there's a lot of components to that, right? And that's joy for some of us, and it's deep grief and sadness and frustration, at times, but you're going to marry five different people. Is it someone that you can get married to for as long as we live? And in a disposable economy, it was back then, and women always got the short end of the stick. I preached this last week, but there was no fault divorce back then, but only men could seek divorce. And Paul is writing and saying, for as long as we both shall live. A third, or rather fourth question is, does he, she belong to the Lord? All right, sports fans, look at me. This is easy to understand, but it's hard to stomach. In writing to the church, these words ring so relevant to us today. Paul would say in the second letter in chapter 6, he would say, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So one more time, this is easy to understand, but it's hard to stomach, hard to swallow for some of us. And this is all stated in love. But here's, that's a farming. Do not be unequally yoked. We don't get that. He's, he's saying that you wouldn't, a farmer wouldn't put 
a, a donkey with an ox or a horse with a camel, you could do that and they could pull the, they could pull the yoke, they could pull it for a little bit, uh, but, but then they would pull in different directions. They would see things differently. They wouldn't go in the same direction. They would run off a cliff. They would pull the equipment apart. It just wouldn't work because they're not equally yoked. And he's writing and he's saying that can be so true. It is true. It's an inevitable conclusion if we're unequally yoked. Now, the Bible gives an answer. The Bible enters into that space in 1 Peter chapter 3 and here in 1 Corinthians and addresses believers who are married to unbelievers. That's a whole a different sermon. Can't, can't touch on it today. It's deep. It's, um, it's thorny. But I'm talking to the single people right now. And if you're married, by the way, you, you have single people. And if, if you don't check out of this because uh, you're in the church and we're brothers and sisters with a heavenly father. And so we're looking out for each other. We're watching and helping each other and warning each other. My wife is um, not old, but she's older now. And through these uh, decades, I've watched her grow in her wisdom. And it's been really fun for me through the years, especially now to look at her and to see her dispense wisdom. She just, she's got wisdom and she dispenses it. And she gives me wisdom a lot. Like when I didn't even, ask, I don't even ask for it. She just gives me wisdom. I'm like, oh, and then I walk in the next room. I'm like, man, thank, it's good. She's right. I don't want to show her she's right. I can't admit it. It hurts, but she's right. She's wise. And I've watched her talk to many younger women uh, at our house on the couch. And she's told them, listen. You can't control where your heart goes. This is true for men, but women, I'm just telling you about my wife. I'm telling you what I've, conversation I've eased up. You can't control where your heart goes, but you can control who you hang out with. You can control how often you talk to them. You can control if you text them back. You can control if you meet up with them. That part you can control. And so it's so cliche. It's so cliche. I'm almost tempted to not use it. But it's true, Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. You can guard your schedule. You can guard your time. You can guard intimacy around you because Jeremiah 17, 9 is true. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? If you get too close to someone who doesn't share your values, who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, you're on the verge of your heart going further and you, it will be almost impossible, if not downright impossible, to retrieve it back. Spoken in love but seen through seasons of experience and so be careful married people with brothers and sisters in Christ who are single let's work together to dispense wisdom to our folks the Bible has a lot of characters and thus a lot of married people but you can't really find an example of a great marriage and every time I say that I discovered that years ago every time I say that someone always challenges me someone challenged me recently on Jacob and Rebecca, and they, they threw a verse at me, well, look how much Jacob loves Rebecca. Well, Jacob loved Rebecca. He also loved and was married to Rebecca's sister, Leah. And he, was also, he also loved and was married to their two maidservants. And those, those four women were in a competition to see how many children they could get Jacob. Is that a good marriage? Women, who wants to be married to like Nick Cannon, right? Like, who, I mean, how many, I mean, how far are we going uh, with this thing? What about Queen Esther and King Xerxes? Or the, you know, she was a queen. My girl was a queen. She was married to a king. But then he got in a drunken state and he raged in a drunken rage and he stripped away the queen's dignity and the, the love that he, the tender, gentle love that he should have been given her. You just don't find good examples of marriage in the Bible. The story of the Bible as it relates to marriage is to point us to the gospel truths. And when you read the Bible, marriage is not a story of they lived happily ever after. 
It's a tool for your spiritual formation. Every time I throw up the message paraphrase, I get in a little bit of trouble with some of you in the intellectual sphere, but here we go. A nagging, we did this at 930. Read it just to yourself. Isn't that a great verse? That's so good. Let's do it like we did at 930. Let's all read that out loud. Wouldn't that be fun? Put a little emphasis on the drip, drip, drip. Y'all ready? A nagging spouse is like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet. You can't turn it off and you can't get away from it. Great advice in marriage. Be careful who you choose because you can't turn it off and you can't get away from it. We got a sort of a leak at our house, a little faucet noise or whatever. I can't fix a thing. So you know what I've been doing? Just turning on box fans to drown it out. But man, nobody wants the leak, leak, leak. No one wants the constant noise. And that's what your relationship could be. You want to be very, very careful in how you select and who you end up with. What's helped Susan and I when we've hit rough patches in our marriage, when we've looked over at the other and thought, we've never threatened or yelled at each other in this regard, but you know, when you've had that like low grade discontent and wondering of, you know, are we in this for the long haul? Do we have what it takes? We've reminded ourselves that in God's view, what God has given to us is this is not a story of happily ever after. It's a tool for our spiritual formation. Look at Colossians 3, 4. It's sort of in there. It says this, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's a future you and the future you is glory. Like if we were Pentecostal charismatic, we'd, we'd make some noise. You would amen right now. Like if there's a future you and that you is glory, say, come on preacher. That future you is glory, but that current you is sinful. The current you is sinful and that's who you marry and that's what you bring into the marriage. I love this. There's a detective writer named Raymond Chandler and Raymond Chandler wrote a a book and in one of his novels, he says this, from 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class, but from 10 feet away, she looked like she was made to be looked at from 30 feet away. (laughs) Now, I love that. You know why I love that? Because that's all of us. Like that's you and that's me. And you know why? I don't know who I'm talking to today. I had, a, I had an appointment this week with somebody. Hope he's not here. But listen, you know why we don't want to get close to people? That's why. That's why right there. Because we don't want to be known. We don't want people to see. And it's like going to the dermatologist. I have some friends, one of whom is a dermatologist. And I don't think she's trying to drum up business. I think her calendar's full for months now. But she's like, you should go. And she found out I used to lifeguard when I had blonde hair and hair. And I was young. I used to drive a Jeep, a soft top. I would have the Jeep off all the time. I'm like, I, I, I need to go to the dermatologist. No doubt about it. In fact, it could be a prayer request. But when you got, look, here's why I'm afraid to go to the dermatologist. When I go to the dermatologist, there's going to be this magnifying glass. I'm not using the proper terms, but there's a magnifying, and there's this light, and it's going to go into every pore, and it's going to see everything. And when you get married, it's like going to the dermatologist. I'm selfish. I'm anxious. I'm greedy. I'm opinionated. I clam up. I withdraw. I have anger, burst of outrage. And all those things are exposed when you get married. And it's the very thing, if you will see that as a tool of spiritual formation. Two couples are sitting, just a modern parable I wrote a couple of days ago. Two couples are sitting at different tables in a restaurant. One couple, they're clearly on a date. They're carefully groomed and they're well-dressed. You can smell the perfume and cologne tables away. They're not comfortable with silence. They talk long, they laugh, they gesture. They tell stories, they ask about each other's food. There's another couple, a couple tables over, they're clearly married. All you can smell is the food. Less eye contact, 
no real gestures. They stare off into space. There's long moments of silence. They're dressed for comfort, not for fashion. So my question in my parable is this. Are they, that married couple, are they experiencing the comfort and ease of years of intimacy? Or are they settled for mind-numbing rut of pathetic boredom? I think I was drinking caffeine when I wrote this. But here's my answer. You can't tell from watching. Because the true indicators of stagnation are inside the relationship. Because see, that, uh, uh, that dating couple, everybody's like, yeah, let's get back to that. Let's recapture the feelings of youthfulness and vitality we had when we first met. Maybe, maybe not. You see, the dating couple, they're, ex- they're, um, they're experiencing this euphoric high. You know what it's built on? Uncertainty. It's a euphoric, oh, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if he loves me. Does he love me? I'm going to ask him. Oh, I did. and he said, yeah. Oh, whoo. He said, yes. I wondered, and he said, yes. I was so uncertain, but now I know. And there's all this uncertainty. And this is the same adrenaline rush, by the way. It's the reason we watch scary movies and ride on roller coasters. And here's my point in saying that. You can't watch scary movies 24-7. You can't ride on roller coasters 24-7. You need to settle in. And you need silence. And you need comfort. And you need to stare off into the space. And it is okay when those things are behind you. It is okay. I'm not giving anybody, listen to me, men. I'm not giving you in particular a reason to not work on your marriage. So don't go too far with that. Sometimes y'all hear things we ain't saying up here. I remember when we married, Susan would wear some comfortable outfits. And she looked great. Isn't she great, by the way, if you know? Isn't she like, there's no way I deserve her. But uh, she would, you know, I I loved it when she would glamour up and when she would cozy on down. But she would wear like these um, sweat short pants with loafers. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And uh, we had settled into the marriage, and then one day she came to lunch in that, and I just told her, I said, hey, you know, I think this is one too many times on that. Like, you can, you can wear the sweatpants with tennis shoes, or you can wear the loafers with jeans, but, you know, and if you keep doing that, I'm going to have to take you back to the wife's store and, uh, and get a new one. To know whether a relationship has slipped into stagnant territory, we ask ourselves five questions. Here they are. If you email me, I'll give them to you. Simple. Are we still growing? Are we still learning? Are we still challenging each other? Do we go out of our way to give gifts? And do we experience gratitude? Or do we take too much for granted? So as Lauren as the team come up, I want to share with you a double date that we had not too long ago. And we're with another couple. Chris, you had a stagehand. I don't have a stagehand. I got to do all my heavy lifting. We were out with another couple. And um, the subject came up. What was the happiest day of your life? Well, y'all stand because I'm about to stop. And uh, we asked, what's the happiest day of your life? And all four of us were like, you know, we were hoping for the, the day you married me is the happiest day. And this one woman said, the other woman we were with, she said, the happiest day of my life because she'd grow, grown up at home with divorce and volatility and pain and things being thrown and angry words. And she said, the happiest day of my life is when my dad called me and met with me and said, what do you think if dad comes back home and mom and dad work on building a happy home? She said, that's the happiest day 
of my life. My prayer is for us. If you're single, to be careful. If you're married, to work on it. And if you're married and it's really hard and difficult, get support. Jesus, we pray, Father, sure to us today. And in a culture that changes, you would take us back to this grand story in the midst of norms being radically different and people redefining the essence of humanity, that you would take us back to being brothers and sisters in Christ with a heavenly father, that male and female would learn to love and walk together, that single people and divorced people and widowed people and people that are hurting and lonely would learn to be a family that we would represent that little outpost of heaven here. In Jesus we pray.